with me, if you would, to 1 Peter. We are continuing our study in this book, in this letter to suffering churches in Asia Minor. And if you would look with me in chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 18, but let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning aware of our need for you. We come to your word aware that apart from your spirit's illumination, we would not understand. So we ask for your spirit's illumination. We thank you that your spirit dwells in us. Lord, we come to your word this morning to submit ourselves to your authority, and to your wisdom, and to your care for us. And we come to your word this morning that you may transform our lives so that we live for your glory and for your namesake. And we come to your word this morning that this church might be united together in the truth of what you speak. And so, Lord, help all of us this morning. We turn our attention to you because we are once again reminded in your word that your son died for our sins, that we were united with you through his sacrifice on the cross, we were forgiven of our sins. And we will one day experience eternal life because of your Son. Lord, we, we are thrilled by these truths. Now make them come alive by your Spirit today. In Christ's name, amen. Look with me in verse 18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, One endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Stunning Stunning declaration by Peter. Now, depending on what translation you are using, verse 18 can begin household slaves, slaves, servants, but it it is slaves that Peter is addressing in this letter. For those living in America... It is impossible to read these verses without the history of our country's horrific practice of slavery coming to mind. And in this respect, our own past is, is appalling. This, this can be a very difficult passage to read along with the other New Testament passages where, where Paul speaks about slaves being submissive to their masters. And in light of our American history, um, it, it, it can challenge us. And just reading these words evoke strong emotions, particularly for our African-American brothers and sisters. We, we brothers and sisters, we cannot begin to feel what, what they feel and truly understand what, what they experience when they read a, a verse like this. But what we can do, we can try and understand their experience and understand what they're feeling. And in reading and, and in reading this, this is what we want to do. But also, also in reading this verse this morning, we have to be careful not to, to insert or, or bring into this verse our modern day understanding of slavery. Because slavery in this era, in the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, was very different than the slavery, the modern slavery that we are so aware of from our 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Slavery was certainly a reality in the ancient world, but it was, it was not a divine institution. It wasn't a, an institution that was adhered to because God said, this is what you must do. No, 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 just the opposite. In contrast to modern day slavery, though, at least the Old Testament, as we read through Israel's history, the Old Testament laws regulated how slaves were to be treated, um, but it never institutionalized slavery. Israel's laws thankfully reflected a, a greater moral sensitivity than the other nations that surrounded them at that time. Um, but but there, are, there are many differences between modern slavery and ancient slavery that Peter is addressing. Servants, or as this verse, as this word servants actually means domestics, household domestics, um, these, these household domestics were, were not slaves because of race. They were, they were slaves because of a variety of, of situations. M- many were, were slaves because of their economic condition. They actually sold themselves into slavery. Others were slaves because of their status in society. And some were slaves because they had been brought from other nations. 
And while they were all living under this, this, this institution of slavery, it was not because of race. Slaves during this time had unique freedoms, which can seem like an oxymoron a bit, but they could actually buy their freedom. They could participate in the political process. They had other freedoms that the slaves in, in America did not. But what Peter is addressing here is that it was slavery just the same. It was a life that they were living, a reality that they were experiencing that was difficult, that was harsh. And as we study this this morning, God's inspired word this morning, we, we must be careful, just be careful not to let the evil failings of our history of slavery in America cloud our ability to hear what Peter is saying in this passage. Because what Peter is not doing in this passage is condemning slavery. That, that's a question that comes to mind. Why, why do the New Testament writers not condemn slavery? Why does Paul not condemn slavery? Why does Peter in this passage not condemn slavery? Does it mean that they support it? Well, absolutely not. I mean, take Paul, Paul, for example. Rather than supporting the institution of slavery, Paul, in 1 Timothy 1.9, actually condemns slave traders along with murderers and the sexually immoral, showing that God is not silent on the matter of slavery. Now, Doug Moo, in referring to Paul's approach to slavery, writes this. He said, at first... Paul's command that slaves obey their masters seems simply, seems simply to endorse that status quo. But what we need to see that what he writes here also subtly undermines it. It is significant that Paul chooses to address slaves at all, implying not only that they are assembled with the other Christians of the Colossian church to hear the letter being read, but they are responsible people who need to choose a certain kind of behavior, Christ-like behavior. Paul never hints that he endorses the institution of slavery. He tells slaves and masters how they are to conduct themselves within the institution. But it is a bad misreading into his teaching to imply he is supportive. Note, Paul was just the opposite. Because of the because you have to understand the institution of slavery was a deeply rooted part of the economy and social structure of the time. More than 50% of the population of Rome and the large cities during this era were enslaved. More than 50%. And so it would have been unwise for these biblical writers. It would have been impossible for these New Testament writers to attempt to abolish the practice of slavery. And they, and that's, they were not after, they were not social justice warriors. What these men, these writers of the New Testament were after were instructing men and women like you and I how to live for Christ in a hostile world how to honor God in the way we live. In, in direct opposition to the way we used to live. 
prior to coming to faith in Christ. And so what the New Testament writers do is address how they are to respond to slavery. And in this passage, Peter is addressing household slaves, slaves who were considered part of the family they served. Many, many of these slaves in this era were more educated than their masters. They were administrators. They, they were teachers. They, they served in their household. Some, some were accountants. These, these slaves were were in many ways, again, much more educated than those that they served. But even still, as slaves, they suffered horrible treatment under cruel owners who hated them, particularly because of their Christian faith. And that's why Peter is writing this letter. These men and women in the churches in Asia Minor, more than 50% who were slaves, and many, particularly that is who Peter is writing to this morning, these slaves, they are, they are suffering, as Peter writes here, they are suffering for following Christ. And now, you, you might think, okay, so, so how does this apply to me? I, I'm not a slave. I'm not a slave. Well, there's a number of ways that this passage is relevant to us. There are a number of ways that we can bring application to this passage because all of us, at some point, we do, we have, or we will suffer unjustly for our faith in Christ. And we will suffer by those who have an authority over us, we, whether it be an employer, or you're in the military, or a teacher, or whoever, these words will apply. And so because of their unjust treatment, Peter caringly and pastorally writes to them to to help them navigate the difficult times as they seek to live for Christ in in a hostile environment. Now, Now, how does Peter care for these men and women who are slaves and yet who are also followers of Christ? What, what words are going to sustain them? What's going to encourage them? What's going to help them make it through as they seek to live for God's glory, which is exactly what Peter is calling them for? Look in, in verse 11 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he says this in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, that... that keeping their conduct honorable is in every situation so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which is what is most likely happening to these slaves, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter, Peter is, is writing, and he is, last week we talked about Peter writing to, to us as believers to say, hey, you, you are to submit yourself to every human institution. And he talks about the institution of emperors and governors and those who are supreme, those who have authority in your life, regardless of what kind of moral background they have or moral code they have, or moral life they have or don't have, we are to submit ourselves to every human institution. We are to subject ourselves to the emperor and to honor them. Not just submit ourselves, but to honor them. And now Peter moves on. And that same, that same 
expectation in verses 13 through 17 about how we're to honor every human institution now falls down to this. Servants, be subject to your masters. How do they live as God's people while still being slaves? And it's it's here where Peter continues, like I said, what, what went on in, in verse 13 about being subject to every human institution. So three, three points from this passage that, that I think we can, we can draw from. The first one is the duty of submission. And then the second will be the reward of submission. And the third is the motivation for submission, the duty of submission for a slave. Peter is... Peter is addressing these men and women who are household slaves, who are domestics, who who have close relationship to the family. The, The overarching duty, he says here, is this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. I find that interesting. He doesn't leave out the word all. He He doesn't say, servants, be subject to your masters with respect. He says, with all respect. Now, is he talking about Who's he talking about here? Because the word respect actually in the Greek is the word phobos, which literally means fear. And what he is talking about is these servants be subject to your masters with all fear. But he's not talking about all fear towards the masters. He's talking about all fear towards the only one who we fear. God. He mentioned this in verse 17 where he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so Peter is not telling these men and women as, who are slaves to fear their master. He's telling them to o- obey their masters, submit themselves to their masters out of their fear of God. Because they are living for God. Because they are living in reverence to God. God. Those in authority, they are to be honored. That's what Peter tells us. They are to be honored. As Christians, their submission is to be motivated, though here, by their fear and reverence for God, not wanting to displease Him by unsubmissive behavior, by by being disrespectful, but by doing their Christian duty to those that God has placed in their lives as those in authority. And when Peter says all, he means all. Not a half-hearted effort, not only to those who are good, but even to those who mistreat them. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, which is obviously easy to do, but also to the unjust. Peter, Peter was well aware that some masters were cruel and harsh and mistreating. But what he sees even more is the eternal importance of these men and women being Christ-like in response to how they are treated. Peter's, Peter's primary goal for the believing slave was not the release 
from their slavery through rebellion or running away, but a Christ-like humility in the midst of suffering as a follower of Christ. As they suffer under an unjust master, slaves are not to rebel. And listen, slaves, slaves, I mean, this is what Peter is writing to at this time, but, but slaves are not the only believers to suffer unjustly. Peter, Peter understood what it means to suffer unjustly. Personally, he understood. Remember, he went before the Sanhedrin and he was beaten for being a follower of Christ. He was told to stop preaching the gospel. He was imprisoned for being a follower of Christ. And so when he, he writes this, he writes from experience. He writes from understanding. I know what it is to be treated unjustly. I know what it is to be treated cruelly. I know what it is to be treated harshly. And I know what it is to submit. And I know when it is time not to submit. And that's what Peter did in Acts 5 when he was told to stop preaching the gospel, he said, no, that's where we cannot go. He understood. And he understood because he was living at this time under Nero's cruel campaign of hatred against Christians. And eventually, Peter would suffer the ultimate of unjust treatment when Nero puts him to death. And so when Peter, Peter writes, he, he writes with a background that completely understands what these men and women are experiencing and what they are walking through. And, and, so there, and there is great relevance in this passage for you and I today. Unjust suffering is just not limited to the Greco-Roman world. Submission to employers can have some very painful and difficult conditions. submission to unbelieving parents or parents who can be cruel or submission to teachers who can be unjust because of your faith in Christ or submission to those if you are in the military. So, I mean, there are a variety of ways we live in submission and we experience the unjust treatment of those who are in opposition who despise our faith in Christ. Listen, in the workplace today, Christians are often ridiculed for their faith. There are mockers around them who ridicule, and some of you in this room have experienced that. You know what it's like to stand for Christ. You know what it's like to to be in a room where people are mocking Christianity, where they're, they're just treating what you believe with the most disdain, and, and you are right there. And you see, see, you see what happens when, when Christians are in the workplace, are treated unjustly, promotions are stifled, menial tasks are assigned, demeaning comments are made, financial expectations are dashed, and the temptation in this time, the temptation is to retaliate. The temptation is to grow bitter in your heart and to grow resentful in your heart. 
to be withdrawn, to, to perform responsibilities that you've been given with mediocrity as a way of retaliating, to be a bit lazy at work, to not giving your all. But Peter has a very different response in mind because he sees beyond the temporal to what is eternal. And then he goes on in verse 20, well, in verse, verse 19, he says, listen, not only be subject to masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In verse 19, he says this, because for this is a gracious thing, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Peter's, Peter's really animated here. This is a gracious thing. When you are in the midst of your suffering with the employer you have or the situation you're in, you are, you are not more aware of what is happening to you, but you are mindful of God. That in the midst of, in the middle of this horrible treatment. You see God. You are aware of God. And, and, and these words, this is twice Peter says this in this passage, for this is a gracious thing that while suffering, and what, what Peter means by a gracious thing is, is that God God sees it and says, the way you are acting at this moment, that you are mindful of me and you are being subject to this em employer or this person and that you are doing it with, with all respect towards me, with fear towards me, that meets my approval. That meets my approval. I, I approve of you. I don't approve of how you're being treated but I approve of you and how you're responding. It's a gracious thing, Peter says, to, to look to God when suffering unjustly rather than being self-absorbed when suffering. Rather than on your way home from work just railing against your employer in the car, muttering under your breath, angry in your heart, resentful in your heart, bitter in your heart. Why would God put me in this position? Why would God put this man in my life or this other employee in my life? Why, why would God do that? Life is hard enough as it is, and I gotta, I gotta go every day, and, I've gotta, I, and I get sick to my stomach when I think I'm gonna walk in and I'm gonna have to see this person who makes my life so difficult. And Peter says, oh, but this is a gracious thing when you are mindful of God. Not that person, not that situation, but when you are mindful of God. Now, he, 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 he balances this out. He, he's quite clear that, hey, listen, if you do something wrong, you actually deserve to be punished. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, there is no credit for it. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're doing wrong, there is an appropriate consequence for it. But 
he goes on in verse 20 to say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure again, again, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God, God takes great pleasure in your response. Being mindful of God, that, that's what empowers our endurance. Having God in mind is what sustains us when suffering under someone else's cruelty, particularly those who have authority over us. And our doing good when suffering, it will have an intended effect. If you, if you remember in, in verse uh, 12 of, of chapter 2, Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Peter, Peter is going back to that. Peter is connecting these words to that, that every time you respond the way you're supposed to, being submissive, being humble, not retaliating, not doing evil, but you, you respect God, you, you show a fear of God, you are mindful of God, your good deeds glorify God. Our doing good when suffering has an intended effect. It will display the true grace of God. That is a gracious thing. And the lost will see the gospel because of us. That, that's what pleases God. And we, we become recipients of his approval. There, there is no approval in this life more important than God's approval. No, no approval. That is what Peter is saying here. There is no more, approve, more special approval than God's approval. F.B. Meyer, in his commentary, he said, F.B. Meyer commented that whenever there is such suffering, suffering unjustly, there is a thrill of delight started through the very heart of God, and from the throne, God stoops to say, thank you. Thank you. And so Peter writes, it is a gracious thing in God's sight. Peter declares that, I mean, those, those words right there, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what that, what that is just so encouraging is Peter is saying, God sees. God sees your suffering. God sees your unjust suffering. God sees that you're enduring. God sees that your behavior is good, that your actions are good. God sees your humility. God sees what you're experiencing. God sees. You are not alone. You are not by yourself. God sees. He is aware. You are not enduring alone. He is present with you. And because we're not alone, Peter's saying we can accept and submit to any earthly master, whether cruel or unkind or good, all for God's glory, because, because God's approval will one day say, well done, well done. Robert Mounts in his commentary says, it is most extraordinary when an innocent person accepts unjust suffering with patience and calmness. 
But then Christians are expected to be extraordinary people. So that is, that is the reward. The reward of submission is God's approval. And then thirdly, the motivation for our submission, Christ's example. Peter, Peter makes an extraordinary statement to these believers. Look at verse 21. He says this. He's told them, okay, you are, you are to be subject to your masters with all respect, fearing God, not only to the good but, and gentle, but also to the unjust. That's a gracious thing um, because you're, in, you're going to endure suffering unjustly and you are going to be, be suffering in the sight of God, and that's great. And, and all of this, all of this cruelty that you may suffer, he says in verse 21, for to this you've been called. <laughs> okay, it didn't, it didn't just like, yeah, you were the unlucky one. You, you happened to get a bad master. But your buddy, your Christian buddy down the street who's a part of our church, he's got a really cool and good master. You just happen to be unlucky. Oh no, Peter says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter Peter's assuring his readers that their lives are not dictated by random events. It just didn't happen. You, that, you got a cruel master. But by the God who has a plan for every believer and is carrying out that plan in their lives. In, in calling them, God gives them. Listen, when we came to Christ, when God called us to himself, he gave us a new identity. He gave us this new identity. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession in, in verse 9. We, once we were not a people, now we are a people. Those words mean the same to the slaves as it does to us. Not only are they slaves, but they are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. They are a people for God's own possession. And Peter assures his readers that, listen, your life, your experience, what you are feeling has not happened randomly. God has called you to this. God has called you to this because in the midst of this, when people see your good deeds, even the evildoers who hate you, when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God in heaven. And so with this new identity, we are all called. Every person in this room is called to suffer for his namesake. Peter, Peter's very clear. This graphic example that he gives us to understand our suffering is of Christ's suffering. And this is what he uses to encourage them to endure and to, to stand firm. Jesus suffered for doing good. He suffered for doing the ultimate good. He suffered for us so that we would follow in his footsteps. For this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, what, is, what are those steps? 
what has what has been written throughout the New Testament that to follow Christ is to take up our cross daily. To follow Christ is to suffer many tribulations that we might enter the kingdom of God. To follow Christ is to be as his disciple that those who are his disciples will suffer like he suffered. Paul writes in Philippians that we, we suffer for Christ that we might share in his glory. If Jesus suffered, how much more will his followers suffer? John Calvin said this, Nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly to suffer. But when we turn our eyes to the Son of God, this bitterness is mitigated for who would refuse to follow him as he goes before us? So to, follow, to follow in his steps are profound Words. The, the original Greek here, talking about following in the steps, literally means to trace. Not, not just kind of follow along his steps, but to literally follow exactly in his steps. Like a child learning how to write would trace letters. That is what we're to do in following Christ in his suffering. We trace his steps. We follow in his steps. Exactly. Edmund Hybert in his commentary said, his steps are the guide to direct the course of the Christian's life. Those footsteps beckon him to follow. Those who have accepted Christ as Savior are challenged to follow his example. His footsteps, his footsteps lead into the valley of humiliation, even to its lowest and darkest depths. But, they also surely and confidently lead through the valley, ending at the throne of glory. P Peter, Peter tells his readers that, that, listen, you follow in his footsteps. And there are, there are two places where you will find the motivation to do that, to, to suffer unjustly. And that is this, seeing Christ as their example and remembering him as their savior, as his their Savior, seeing his example and remembering him as their Savior. Let's look at that. Look at the example that he sets. Look at verse 22. Here, here, here are four things Jesus did not do. He committed no sin. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. The innocent one, the one who had no sin, who became sin for us, was reviled for our sin, was threatened for our sin, suffered for our sin, the innocent one. He committed no sin. And his response 
to the unjust suffering that he's experienced because he took on our sin, even though he was innocent, his response was not to revile in return. His response was not to threaten. Oh yeah, I'm the son of God. When I get down from this throne, you are toast. And one very crucial thing he did do, the end of verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His suffering is our example because it brought about our salvation. Jesus' atoning sacrifice is the foundation of all our motivation to follow him. He's not just our example. He's just not our model. Brothers and sisters, he's our mediator. Knowing that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, Peter speaks of in 119, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Knowing that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, we can with faith take up our cross and follow in his footsteps. Peter presents to us Jesus, this suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He, He stumbled under the weight of the cross towards Calvary as a lamb that was being led to slaughter. The sufferings of Jesus were not his own fault, but ours. His He suffered to fulfill God the Father's will because it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God's will that Jesus suffered. He is he was he was the willing sacrifice. He poured out his life on, unto death. He, he bore our sins. His meekness appears in silence. He does not revile. He stood before the high priest and said nothing. He stood before Pontius Pilate and said nothing. He stood before Herod and said nothing. On the cross, he answered nothing to all those who mocked him and ridiculed him as his enemies, and they cursed him, and it taunted him, and then they crucified him, and he said not a word until the very end. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Peter says, brothers and sisters, in your suffering, that's your example. That's your model, and that's your mediator. Will you be like him? What, what will you be like when you leave here today and you go to work tomorrow or you're around those who are displeased with your faith? How will you respond? Not just verbally, where you may not say anything. How will you respond in your heart? What will you think about them? What will you feel about them? How will you treat them? Jesus' meekness in his silence 
it not only showed his submission to his father's will, it showed his confidence in God's, in God's righteous judgment, where he said he trusted the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. Jesus, Jesus knew Jesus knew he had committed no sin. Jesus knew he was innocent. He knew his suffering was unjust. He knew that, that what he was doing, he knew he was suffering for a just cause, even though he was suffering unjustly. He knew he was being judged for our sin. And he knew his father would judge him justly by raising him from the dead. Oh, brothers and sisters, Jesus is far more than our example. He's our sin bearer. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that for this purpose that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And he is not talking about physical healing. He's talking about the spiritual healing. That, that the wounds he's talking about, what we need to be healed from is our enslavement to sin. You see, the greatest cruelty that we've ever suffered, the greatest cruelty any human's ever suffered, is the slavery to sin which leads to eternal death, which leads to God's judgment, which leads to God's wrath, which leads to God's torment. That is the worst slavery of them all. And we have been set free from that. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have become slaves of righteousness. And, and Peter writes here, he says, look, by his wounds you've been healed. Yes, you're no longer slave to sin that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, to his righteousness. Yeah, slavery to a human master is horrific. But slavery to sin, brothers and sisters, is far worse so Jesus submits himself to his Father's will for our sake. He suffers for our sake. And now we are to follow in his steps. Our, our faithfulness to Peter's exhortation here carries, carries some significant ethical implications for every day and, and for the gospel in, in your workplace. This is where you're most likely going to be treated unjustly. How will you respond? Will you either, will you adorn the gospel or will you, will you disgrace the gospel? And that, that's, that's an important question that Peter is really asking here. When, when suffering unjustly, will you respond in anger or bitterness or slander or gossip or laziness or compromise? Because in the hostile environment that you're walking in, there are a lot of landmines. Oh, there are, there are a lot of landmines that are going to be stepped on that will, that will lead to some unjust suffering for you where they, people around you want you to cave to the cultural pressures. And when you don't cave to the cultural pressures, you will suffer unjustly. When you don't cave to gender issues, well, they don't want to be called he, she. Or she wants to be called he and he wants to be called she. Or all of that. Or they want you to celebrate their same-sex marriage. Or they want you to go through this diversity training so you can. And they will expect you to follow the requirements that compromise your biblical values. 
Or you'll have opportunities to refuse to listen to gossip and slander at work as employees talk about other employees or their employers. And you don't do that. You will suffer unjustly. Or you'll simply be reviled for, for your faith. You'll lose promotions. You'll lose salary increases. And the question is, how will you respond? Will you follow in his steps? And, and history reminds us, and Peter reminds us here that, listen, there was, there was a season prior to coming to faith in Christ where we did not follow in his steps. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep. But because he bore our sins in his body on the tree, we now have a shepherd who is the overseer of our souls. And Peter closes with this passage with the most comforting words of a caring pastor reminding every reader that Jesus is the good shepherd who feeds his sheep, who leads his sheep, who protects his sheep. He is the good shepherd who makes you lie down in green pastures who leads you besides still waters, who restores your soul. That is Peter saying, hey, in the midst of your unjust suffering, in the midst of this hostile environment, you have a shepherd. And not only is he a shepherd, he is the overseer of your soul. He is protecting you and preserving you. He is sustaining you by His Spirit. And until that final day when your salvation is complete, this shepherd and overseer, this God who watches over you, will never leave you nor forsake you. Peter Peter wrote in chapter 1 these words, and I want to remind you of what, what all, all that Peter is writing is to this end. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is at the foundation of everything Peter writes. When he says, submit yourself to every human institution, when he says, submit yourself as slaves to even unjust masters, he is saying, listen, the end of that is this. You have a God who's guarding you, who's protecting your inheritance until the last time. Father, thank you that we are not alone. You are guarding us and you are protecting us and you are, you are standing with us and you see all things and you know all things and you are sustaining us by the work of your spirit through your indwelling spirit. You are, you are helping us, Lord. And Father, we have confidence that we can stand firm to the end as we live to bring glory to your name. 
So help us to do that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.